bum bum bottom 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 bum b
And we were like, we have to do this for the rest of our natural lives. And maybe our supernatural lives, maybe we'll become ghosts. I'm glad you're excited, Lisa. I'm a little overwhelmed. Yes. You know, I'm like, I am so stoked to be moderating the Ninja Turtles panel. And it's going to be such a stacked panel. We can't even say all the people that are going to be on it. Kevin Eastman for sure is going to be on it. But like, we, we need to do some serious prep for that panel. And we're just coming back from Fantastic Fest and Lost Weekend. We have actually done our laundry, but we now need to do <laughs> another round of laundry for New York Comic Con. So the apartment's looking a little bit better than it was a week ago. But I also feel like our apartment has become our hotel. Yeah. Right? And it's it's I'm like I'm just in a weird vibe. Totally worth it, though, because Fantastic Fest and Lost Weekend were rad as hell. We didn't really know what to expect this year, being press at Fantastic Fest with the dual strikes going on. So we weren't going to have any writers. We weren't going to have that much talent there. But I liked redirecting our energy this year back to just watching movies. Yeah, we watched a ton. I think we saw in total around 37 films in 12 days between Fantastic Fest and mm -hmm. Lost Weekend. Maybe you saw one or two movies more than I did. Maybe I saw one or two movies more than you did. Not sure. We haven't actually done it, but it was a ton of movies. Right. And yes, there weren't as many writers or actors there, but there were still several directors and we still managed to do a couple interviews. We chatted with Macon Blair about the Toxic Avenger remake and we talked to Thomas Nagovin, who is the producer in charge of the new Caligula Ultimate Cut. And because that's not struck work, Malcolm McDowell was at the fest and we got 20 minutes with Malcolm McDowell. Festival interviews for me are really exciting because the creators of the films are still kind of processing their emotions about how the film is being received. A lot of times they have not seen an entire cut of the film until they, they watched it at the festival. And with Malcolm McDowell, particularly, he was really still processing his emotions about getting a recut of Caligula, which if you guys don't know, was a traumatic moment in his illustrious career. Yeah, so they filmed Caligula in the late 70s, and I think they premiered the film in Rome in 1976, but then producer Bob Guccione, you know, the penthouse pornographer, mm -hmm. recut it and inserted, pardon the pun, pornographic elements into Caligula. And when Malcolm McDowell and the crew saw that version of the movie, they were deeply offended and a lot of uh, aggro bubbled out of that experience. And Malcolm McDowell talks about that with us, how, you know, when anyone would bring up Caligula, it was like bringing up some just disastrous moment from his life and he never wanted to talk about it. Yeah, imagine someone bringing up your worst day at work every time you did a job interview. Exactly. And so this... But new, also there's porn. Yeah, 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 yeah. This new cut that Thomas Nagovin oversaw not only removes the pornographic elements, it adds about 30 extra minutes of footage that was never used. So it's now a three-hour version 
of Caligula. And while it is not the atrocity that the old movie was, it's still pretty like saucy, guys. <laughs> As a prudy Judy, I was a little bit scandalized by the amount of like soft core, yeah. whatever you call it. Yeah, and we <laughs> had to watch the 7 a.m. screening, which means we had to get up at like 6 a.m., 5.45 to make that screening. And that movie is a heck of a cup of coffee. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was anticipating getting a little snoozy because I'm like, it's historical. No, no. Uh, yeah, no. I There's was no wide sleeping. awake. <laughs> There's no sleeping in Caligula. And I actually really enjoyed the experience of watching it. But it was elevated by getting this chance to chat with Malcolm McDowell about his emotional experience of making it back then and the trauma that that caused. And then now how he feels healed by what Thomas Nagovin has done. This cut of Caligula actually premiered at Cannes and Malcolm McDowell did not go because he did not want to see it. He did not want to talk about it. Clearly he didn't approve of it. But then once the buzz came out that the film had been rectified, he became curious. And we were actually the first people he talked to after the Fantastic Fest screening. And those of you who are patrons, you already know this information, but he was operating under the presumption that we as press had watched the original and then watched this one. And when he found out that Brad nor I had never seen the original, he was overjoyed. And he's like, do not, do not double back and go watch it. This is the film. Yeah, yeah. And, and the whole conversation can be heard on our Patreon feed. If you're not a patron, you'll be able to read it over at Film School Rejects. Lisa also did a review at Film School Rejects of The Toxic Avenger. And we interviewed Macon Blair. And that interview will be on Film School Rejects. But it's also in our Patreon feed right now. Yeah, why not? Fantastic Fest then ends. We get on a plane back to Virginia. And then we drive right to Winchester to attend the Lost Weekend Film Festival. And Lost Last Weekend is a completely different vibe than Fantastic Fest. Fantastic Fest is all like genre films. So they're all gory and sloppy and scary and intense. And then Last Weekend is a little bit more artsy fartsy, yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's, Last Weekend makes me feel more warm fuzzy than Fantastic <laughs> sure, sure, Fest. Sure, sure, sure. Fantastic Fest is a gauntlet. It's a gauntlet cinematically. But for a person who has social anxiety, it's like also a gauntlet socially where there are just so many strangers. You see so many faces and you, especially after you've been going a couple of years, you're like, do I actually know that guy? Or have I just been seeing his face? <laughs> right, right. Where right. Last Weekend is a lot smaller, a lot more intimate. We have a lot more like friends there. Yeah, I mean, the community is strong at Last Weekend and we feel part of the community. Whereas like at Fantastic Fest, it's like a series of clicks and you try to like introduce yourselves into new clicks and sometimes you're successful and sometimes you're not. This year, we just kind of stuck to our people and uh had a great time I, I had a great time um but like for me having fantastic fest and lost weekend so close together it's like kind of like a tv dinner where it's just like there's meatloaf and there's like apple cobbler where it's just like those are two things that i want to <laughs> eat but like why are they 
so close on like one plate. It just like <laughs> feels wrong and weird. Yeah, but at the same time, meatloaf and apple cobbler, scrum, scrum, scrums. Love it, love it, love it. Yum. Yeah, yeah. I'm stuffed afterwards though. <laughs> yeah. And I should seek medical aid. But it's well worth it. A lot of these films don't have distribution yet. A lot of them haven't come out yet. So it, it really feels like a privilege to get to see some of these movies. Should we pick a couple films that our listeners should be on the lookout for? Like Ooh. two from Fantastic Fest and two from Lost Weekend? Sure. Obviously, we're both very excited for people to see Caligula, the ultimate mm -hmm. cut, but it is not for everybody. So be cautious while you enter. Uh, my favorite Fantastic Fest movie was a film called Last Stop in Yuma County. Mm -hmm. Comes from director Francis Galupi. It is a debut feature, has a large cast of cool people, Jim Cummings, Richard Brake, uh, Jocelyn Donahue. It's set in the 70s. Jim Cummings is a knife salesman who pulls up to a gas station, but the station has run out of gas and he has to wait in a diner until that gas truck arrives. And then people fall into the same situation. There might be some bank robbers in there. It's a very Coen Brothers-esque movie. Things explode into violence, but in ways that you don't necessarily expect. I had a blast with this movie. It was so fun, but also bleak as hell. Yeah, oh, this is a great pick. I, it's not my pick. I have a different film. I have a different varietal of bleakness. <laughs> um, my film is a film from Spain, and it is You're Not Me. Oh, also good. A woman goes home for Christmas, and she wants to surprise her parents by, like, bringing her wife and her newborn son a couple of days early. <laughs> but when they show up, her parents are acting like super cagey and weird. And they're actually already entertaining these guests that she doesn't know. And when she says, oh, uh, that's okay. We'll just go set up in my room and you guys can enjoy the rest of your dinner. And they go like, actually, no, Natalia is sleeping in your room. And also, wearing your clothes and inheriting your heirlooms. And what I like about this movie is it kind of plays on the idea of the daughter feels like she didn't become the person that her parents anticipated that she would be. And she was thinking that she was at this place where they can kind of heal that wound. And then she comes home and she feels like they just found this replacement on the street who has taken her place. But like Last Stop in Yuma County, it starts to go in one direction and then goes in another direction and then goes in another direction. It's a completely different movie yeah, yeah. than the movie that I am telling you. Yeah, but yeah. I do not want to yeah. pull the rug out from no. under you. I, I, I just want you to be surprised like I was surprised. Like both of these films like if you learn anything more than what we have just said i would be sad these are movies i would not watch trailers for i would just go into them uh now at lost weekend which lisa said has a very different vibe than fantastic fest the movie that really stuck out for me was Max and Molly in the Future. It's a science fiction rom-com that is heavily inspired by When Harry Met Sally. And when you first see the trailer, which is available, you're like, I don't know if this movie can pull off what it's trying to do. And I'm here 
here to tell you that it absolutely does. And the trailer does not do the movie justice. It's really funny. It's incredibly sweet. And it left me skipping out of the theater. I missed out on Molly and Max, which is sometimes a thing that happens at film festivals. The FOMO is real. You're afraid <laughs> of missing amazing films. And you do. Because yeah. there's so much good stuff the out there. The FOMO got us to finally attend these festivals. But then you discover that when you're at those festivals, FOMO still exists. <laughs> it's very FOMO-y. Yeah. But in a good way, I guess. Eh, in, a, in a way that keeps us coming back. My pick for last weekend is actually a doc. And Penny Lane is one of my all-time favorite documentarians. Um, you may have seen her other work, Hail Satan. That's a great one. And it has a question mark, which is why I'm saying it like that. Hail Satan. <laughs> and then also the Kenny G doc, oh, man. which we saw last last weekend. And it was amazing. Both are great. Both are great. This one, though, I might be my favorite. It's really special. And it is called Confessions of a Good Samaritan. And it's about her decision to be an altruistic kidney donator. So we all know that there are thousands of people just waiting in line to receive a kidney and there are not enough people donating to fulfill everybody's needs. And the system has to change or the technology has to speed up where we don't have to use donated kidneys. So the documentary starts with her in this very like frenetic defensive place about like why she's made this decision, why it's the right decision for her, but also like why everybody should be making this decision. And then we get to see her go through the process of saving someone's life and donating a kidney and seeing how that process changes her as a person. Like I've had on my mind a lot, I think I've even brought it up on the podcast, the idea of transformative decisions. Yes, you there, have. There are certain decisions in your life that you can't, you literally cannot make an informed decision about. Like one of them is marrying somebody. You can think, 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 think all of the time, every day about what it's like to be married to someone, but you're not gonna know until you do it. Or like having a child. You can read all of the books about what it's like to bear a child, but you're not really going to know what you're going to be like as a parent until you are a parent. Donating your kidney is one of these things. And so it's just kind of like a leap of faith. And I've been kind of obsessed about watching people make these kinds of radical leaps of faith because I like to see a person transformed. And that's what Confessions of a Good Samaritan is about. Yeah, Penny Lane is a different person because of that choice that she made. And it was very vulnerable and brave of her to bring a camera into that choice. Yeah. And makes for a, a heck of a great documentary, highly recommended. And Count Crowley, the main topic of this week's episode involves one of those transformative decisions. And he's not even talking about the werewolf. Get it? Because werewolves transform. Right. Currently, there are two Count Crowley trade paperbacks available from Dark Horse Comics, written by David Dasmalchin and illustrated by Lucas Kettner. Reluctant Midnight Monster Hunter and Amateur Midnight Monster Hunter. A third one, Mediocre Midnight Monster Hunter, will be available on November 8th, or at least the first issue will be. Count Crowley is about Jerry, who is a newscaster who is kind of failing publicly like she had been in a much larger market and for one reason or another she ended up 
back in her local market working for her brother and she's dealing with addiction issues and she kind of feels like the job she's in is not really like worthy of her. So she makes a huge mistake and, and essentially um, takes the opportunity of being a newscaster and like throws it in the garbage. And then the only gig that she can get after that is this late night TV monster host, Count Crowley. There was a Count Crowley before her and they need a new Count Crowley and she is taking on that mantle. And that's the transformative decision that I was alluding to. Like mm -hmm. She has no idea what is going to happen to her by making that choice, by becoming Count Crowley. There is a handful of responsibilities she was not uh, made privy to. And that is when you are Count Crowley, you also have to monster hunt on the side. Yeah, yeah. There will be a werewolf and a Frankenstein monster. <laughs> and that sounds like a lot of fun, especially if you're into this genre. But David Dasmalchen has put so much of himself into this mm -hmm. story as well. It's a very personal tale, and you can feel that humanity when you're reading Count Crowley, which is why the comic really stood out for Brad and Lisa. Yes, it's funny, it's fun, it has those horror elements, but it is about making a personal transformation and discovering the place where you fit in the world. You should read Count Crowley in single issues. I think that the book does very well with like the episodic nature of like, there's a monster of the week, but also there is like an overarching story that is Jerry's personal story. But the source of my curiosity for this interview are the afterwards that he includes in the volumes. He gets right into why Jerry is such a meaningful and personal character to him. And I feel like he starts the comic book couples counseling type conversation in this afterward. He really welcomes the opportunity to talk about his struggle with substance abuse and the transformative decisions that he's made in his life. Yeah, David loves loves the horror genre mm -hmm. and that love radiates through every panel of this book and he is using that love of that genre as a form of therapy mm -hmm. you know by contributing to it he is working out the stuff that's going on inside him and we find that so exciting like that's what comics are all about for Brad and Lisa. This was also a conversation that got me excited for the next segment of this episode, which of course is our referrals segment. Referrals! Every episode of Comic Book Couples Counseling now features this referrals segment sponsored by Omnibus. And in case you don't know what Omnibus is, it is a modern digital comic book store and reader app carrying your favorite single issues, volumes, and omnibuses all day and date. Just like your local comic book store, you pay per book, but digital. Their focus is on building an excellent customer shopping and reading experience and using novel discovery tools to help fans find their new favorite book. They feature top tier content and already have many of the top publishers in comics today. So in the spirit of helping people find their next new favorite book, we have this referrals segment. 
The idea is to give our counselees, that's you guys, further reading on the themes of this episode. Think of it as us sending you to specialists to further your healing journey through comic books. For this segment, Lisa, I tried really hard to make Transformers number one from Daniel Warren Johnson the referral, <laughs> but I couldn't quite see its connection to Count Crowley. Of course, we're only one issue in. Maybe we will see those connections in future issues. Well, uh, it being a referral in the future is an inevitability. <laughs> and Transformers is on Omnibus, so so excited about that. But I did find the perfect trade paperback companion to Count Crowley, and it's also from Dark Horse Comics, and it's from a past comic book couples counseling guest, and somebody you've already referred in past referral segments. It's Kyle Starks' new horror trade paperback, where Monsters Lie, which he did with illustrator Peter Kowalski. Kyle, like David, is a big-time horror hound, and what he has done with this series is he's collected all the various trope characters from the horror genre and put them into one gated community. How fun. So you have like a Norman Bates character uh -huh. in there. You have a Leatherface, a Jason, and then you have some real surprises. Like I really want to spoil one of them for you, Lisa. Do not. But I will not. This comic is very, very, very funny in a bleak and dark way. But like all Kyle Stark's comics, behind that humor is some real pathos, is some real emotion, is some real pain. And I came away from Where Monsters Lie needing a sequel and needing to know that some of these characters are going to be okay. Some of these characters are definitely not going to be okay. Uh, but Where Monsters Lie feels like it could have... Uh, an extended universe out there if the, uh, you know, if all you people go out and buy this comic book. We're going to buy two because we've bought it on Omnibus and we're going to have the physical copy because that's just who we are, okay? Our listeners are so judgy. I know. Lisa. What's with their listening tone? Okay, now it's my turn. Okay, my let's turn. hear your referral. My referral is actually also from a previous comic book couples <laughs> counseling guest and it is... Guilt from oh. Lisa Quitney and Morissette. Oh, great pick, great pick. Guilt is spelled G-I-L-T, and it stands for Guild of Independent Lady Temporalists, and it's a time travel book, and how it connects to Count Crowley is Trista takes this job being a caretaker of an elderly woman, Hildy, but when she arrives at her new gig, she finds out that time travel is going to be involved. And she just kind of says yes to life. It is a transformative decision. And I feel like Jerry and Trista and myself all have this thing in common where it's like, I had this really clear vision of who I'm going to be, who I was going to be when I grow up. And then like the second I entered adulthood, it's like, oh, it's not going to be that thing. It's going to be something else. And like 
I feel kind of directionless. And it's good for me to see like Jerry and Trista go like chase the dream that's chasing you. Mm. You know, like mm. Jerry wants to be on screen. She thought it would be as a newscaster. But all of a sudden she she discovers that she has this following and this talent for hosting a monster movie show. Mm -hmm. I feel like so often we find ourselves chained to the dreams of a five year old. Right. And we have to cut those chains as soon as humanly possible. That person was an idiot. They, they didn't know yeah, anything. They were a child. Yeah. I love that pick. I also love highlighting Ahoy Comics, the publisher of Guilt. They're doing so many rad things. Would also recommend the gimmick from them. And both Guilt and Where Monsters Lie are currently available on Omnibus. Find the links to them in the show notes of this episode. Referrals. So transformative decisions are the theme of this week's episode, and we are going to get into Jerry's transformative decision as it appears in Count Crowley with David Dasmalchin himself. Again, the first two trade paperbacks are available from Dark Horse Comics currently, and the new series launches on November 8th, Mediocre Midnight Monster Hunter. I am so excited for everyone to hear this conversation because David is so sweet and nice. So let's stop pleasure delaying <laughs> and get to our conversation with David Dasmalchin. David, welcome to Comic Book Couples Counseling. Hello. Hey, you wonderful couple. It's exciting to be here with you and we get to talk about things that I love like comic books. Yes, our favorite thing ever, our favorite medium. Um, I love that. I want to start with your afterword of the volume two. You mentioned that Count Crowley is like the consummation of everything that's important to you as a storyteller. And that is just like a really scary place to start, right? Yeah, it's terrifying because if you don't get it right, you don't... Um... You don't, you don't get a lot, you don't get, <laughs> in my opinion, you don't get more You in, in life. I guess this isn't my opinion. It's a fact. You don't get, you don't get second chances to make a, to a first impression. You get, you get your shot. I got my shot with Count Crowley to finally get to be the shepherd of a story through the medium that I love so much being comic books, getting to tell a story about a character that I have been thinking about and developing for so long that I care about so much. And then dealing with, you know, complicated and complex ideas through the lens of the, the genre of horror with monsters that I love so much. So all of that coming out the gate and being like, this is my chance. This is the time that this is going to be on shelves in comic shops. People are either going to, it's it's going to work. I'm going to do the best job possible and I'm going to really fire on all cylinders and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to captivate people or it's going to fall. And, um, and I was terror. It was terrifying. It still is terrifying because every time I go to tell a new story or write a new script with Count Crowley, it's much more than going, I can't wait to find a way to, you know, um, thread in, let's say, uh, a mummy mythology into mm -hmm. the world of Count Crowley or a witch mythology into the world of Count Crowley. Because if you start reading the book for your listeners who don't know it, one of the fun things about the series is that we take traditional and classic monsters and then we subvert everything you think you know about them because they've been 
feeding fake news and information into uh, culture for generations so that when it's time to battle them, we don't actually know how to stop them. So there's that, which is fun, but the bigger ideas at play, you know, issues revolving around identity, mental health, addiction, things that are really important to me come into that. And I, and I just, I, I was so scared um, of bringing everything I've got to this and then having it not work. But um, that's, I guess just the risk that you take when you love something so much and you're willing to give it all that you've got with the hope that you can make something really that is more meaningful than maybe just a template for some awesome art. Because there's, don't get me wrong, for those of you who are out there listening to this who are big comic collectors, there are things that I have been, you know, a massive fan of over the years. And I really couldn't tell you about lasting plot points or character relationships that were that meaningful to me. There was... There was a a world created through the visual style of certain comics, which is fine. That's not that they're less or not as good. It's just that's a different approach. This, to me, needed to be something that really got in your heart. Um, and that's a risk, you know, that makes me very vulnerable as a storyteller. But I think um, it's the only it's the only kind of work that I'm interested in doing you know well that's why we really wanted to talk to you because after we first read the books we were like well these are the comics that we want to see out in the world we're all about finding ourselves within the stories that we're reading and, and allowing the you. stories to change our lives and it, it like they they have such an ability this comic has such an ability to impact your own self-reflection and as a creator i'm sure it's doing that as well and that balancing act that you're doing of, you know, wanting to explore these rich themes, but also pull off rad visuals, great creatures, be a great monster book. How, like, how do you maintain that balance? Well, there, therein lies the value and 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 the vitality, the the utmost importance of who you choose as your collaborators. And I think this is something for those who aren't comic creators out there listening that just applies to life. Who are the people that you're going to choose to be your partner, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your uh, co-workers when you get to have a say in that matter? Obviously, a lot of times we don't get to choose, but there are relationships that we do get to be selective with in our lives. And in the creative process, I have learned through my journey in you know, film work and theater work that um, Partnering with people, even if they might be talent-wise or credits experience-wise, somebody that might be shiny and look good on the surface, if we don't have the, the true connection, there isn't a trust, a bond that's formed, then it's futile and it ends up not leading to good art. So for me, I'm so lucky that I got paired with Megan Walker, anybody who loves comic books and studies the craft of comic book work understands the importance of an editor and in, in anything publication wise writing, uh, you know, in fiction, nonfiction, but in comics, a great editor is an ally in ways that you never saw coming because they see things before you do. And she loved the script and the character so much. She immediately had strong instincts that were very much in line with mine. I was looking to evoke an essence of a Bernie Wrightson-y come, you know, Al Jaffe come kind of tone that felt elevated and stylistic, but that still could find emotional resonance in the faces, maybe the way a Dan Clowes character could do something with its eyes. And 
she was the person who put up Lucas for me. And I said, do you think, you know, he'd be interested? I'm a big fan of his. And she said, uh, it's always worth an ask. She had him read the script. He said, yes, the rest is history. I mean, the, mm. the team that I have Lucas and Lauren and Frank along with Megan as my editor have been the team that's been all every issue we've ever done for Crowley. We will hopefully be having an opportunity to introduce some variant covers at some point soon. Um, but which would be the first time I've collaborated with artists that are not Lucas on this book. Mm. And uh, I would like to make this book with Lucas for the rest of my writing career. You know, mm. he's just, that's the the trick, man. That is the hook. Having that team around you that just understands your vision, elevate your vision. You can trust with your vision. Um, it's, it's the best feeling in the world. What does working within comics give you that working in other mediums does not? <laughs> Well, it's a much more intimate form of um, collaboration. Now, granted, if you're on scene, on set doing scene work, your collaborative, you know, intimacy is just you, your scene partner, your director, your cinematographer, the people who are right there in that space. But you're still surrounded by, you know, hundreds of people. There's a lot of voices at play. You've got producers shaping things. You've got, um, you know, a, a, a much larger team. And it's a beauty in that. There's a wonderful power in that, in the, the coordination of hundreds sometimes of people's minds to tell a story. In comics, it's me and my artist. It's really me and Lucas with, with Megan overseeing to see that we're headed in the right direction. And she catches little things and goes, well, what did you think about this? What about this? By the time we then get Lucas's inks, and then it goes to Lauren. Now we trust and we know Lauren just has it in, in, in spades that she knows this world and she gets the, the palette perfectly. Um, and then it gets to Frank and letters, as you know, are they are the basis of how we're processing words in comics. And if you don't have a killer letterer who doesn't understand the mini, minuscule nuance of what you need tonally, then your book isn't going to be right. So um for for me, I would say it's 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 very freeing again because I have the right partners in such a quick turnaround. Let's say I'm working right now. I'm working on a um, a film that's on pause because we're on strike. But like when we get back from the strike, it's me, a writing partner. There's a producer. There's a director. There are eventually other financiers involved. So like every rewrite, every pass on something, then it goes through a, a sieve of other people's opinions, thoughts, et cetera. When it's me and Lucas and I'm just, I'm up here in my mad lab, you know, <laughs> creating the monster, it goes right back and forth. It's uh, I, I did a, I did a co-write with Steve Niles and it was yeah. like so intimate. We just were shooting the script back and forth to one another. I got to co-write with, um, my writing partner, Leah Kilpatrick, on this upcoming Headless uh, Horseman one shot for Dark Horse that is so awesome. And that was like even being in the same room sometimes and you're just the intimacy and the 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 space that you get to concoct something when you've got the right partners is um, it's so freeing and cool and different than any other form of storytelling. I love how in Count Crowley, you have really streamlined your big ideas so that they roll out in this really organic way. Um, I love that you referenced Emil Ferris and this idea of there are good monsters and there are bad monsters. And I really see that uh, expressing itself through Jerry and, and most, most obviously in her interactions with Steve, the yeah. werewolf and yes. her, you know, like 
do you feel that her thinking so little of herself at this point in the story, like that she can look at someone who is a monster with a unique perspective of like, yeah, I know you're like, a like you're a, you're this hairy man eating animal, but you can't be all bad. I mean, that was the, that was the, the thing for me and, and my journey when I got into recovery and I started to work on learning how to get clean and sober and then getting into my mental health journey, it was fascinating because I had so much self-loathing and I felt like such a failure as a human being. And I felt like such a broken person. And I felt like somebody that just my, my, my existence, there's this terrible trick that mental illness and the disease of addiction plays on people. And it plays on all of us to varying degrees. You know, I think everybody probably listening to this at one point or another has felt like God, you know, so-and-so's life would probably be a lot easier if I wasn't a part of it. Or my family wouldn't have had so many headaches if I hadn't done da 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 da. Like most people who have any form of self reflection feel that at some point, unless they're narcissistic. Um, but when you're struggling with mental illness and addiction, it can be so extreme, so far that then you're unable to kind of function without just, you know, numbing yourself out or destroying yourself. And then you get into these rooms which, you know, for me in the beginning was like AA rooms and meetings and, you know, um, being in, you know, treatment. And you're looking around you at all these other people who you realize feel the same way. And you realize that there is a path forward for them. And if you see the path forward for them, because you're sitting next to a woman who's maybe six months into her recovery, you're sitting next to some old guy who's 20 years into his recovery, like, oh, there is a path forward. And these people deserve love and they deserve another chance and they deserve, you know, opportunity um, then so do I. And it just takes a lot longer for you to realize it about yourself. That's been pretty consistent. I notice in the journey for a lot of people, it's very hard for those of us who, you know, all of us to, to believe that we deserve it, but when you can see it in others, and that's how I wanted the journey to begin for Jerry. I wanted her to see something broken in someone else, but realize that person's not disposable as much as our society wants to tell us that those people, you know, who, are living on the fringes or the people who are deep in their addiction or, you know, self-destruction um, as easy as it is to just quantify them as selfish or, you know, throwaways. It's, it's not true. And um, so, and it's tragic often. It's hard. It's not a guarantee. There's no guarantee victories in these. I didn't want there to be any guaranteed victories in Count Crowley. I didn't, as much as I love the world's created by all of my favorite comic heroes from, you know, Vampirella to Hackslash to, you know, Buffy stuff. And, and, and of course I love Blade and I've always been a big collector of, you know, all, all forms of monstrous superhero stuff, Morbius to Tomb of Dracula to the Werewolf by Night. There is something that always felt frustrating to me as a, as a consumer of story that like, you know, someone walking into a room could just pull out an unlimited load of wooden state crossbow weapons and just take out 200 vampires, you know, in a, in a, in, 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 in one encounter. And I wanted the world of Count Crowley to feel really dangerous and to feel like people, it's not always a guarantee, like, and just like with addiction and mental illness, just because you walk in that room, it's not a guarantee. It's scary. It's hard. Um, and hopefully people feel those stakes when they're reading the book. It's really beautiful to me to watch Jerry's relationship to like worthiness. At the beginning of the story, she is in such a, 
like a defensive mode when she's with Vincent Freights and he's going like, oh, you're a woman. And so you can't be appointed. You're not appointed. So you're not going to be able to really make a difference or accomplish anything. And you really don't feel like that's penetrating. She seems to be dismissing it and, and she seems to be um, just getting done what needs to be done. But then when she has that turning point and she realizes, oh, I am appointed it changes her perspective on every area of her life of course yeah yeah and that's why jerry in my opinion needed to be a woman jerry mm. for me for a long time was jerry j-e-r-r-y it was a mm. guy and i always imagined making a movie at some point and me getting to be jerry bartman the guy <laughs> who was count crowley and i was gearing up to start really getting serious about making this story come to life you know, and pitching it as a, as a, as a comic book or even as a series, maybe I didn't know. And my wife Eve had always said this was her favorite thing that I had talked about as far as, because I, I, I write a lot of different projects, features and TV shows and plays and comic books. And she was like, this is, this is the one, this is your, this is the one you got it. You got to do this. You got to do this. And um, so I was getting really close to like putting it into a sharp form. And it was around 2004. 15, you know, 2016, when I was writing about writing it all the time. And that was the moment that was one of the moments where we were seeing, you know, how many women weren't being believed. It can, I mean, that's happened historically, but it was just, it was really like everywhere you looked, you're like, oh my God, this is such a consistent story. And so many different women who I love and care about my own family these stories were coming out where they were talking about things that had happened. And I was like, really? Like at that job, I thought you loved that job. And they'd be like, yeah, I, I did love that job, but I just had to put my head down and tolerate what was happening because anytime I spoke out about it, I got, um, you know, it didn't, it led to worse problems for me. And I was like, holy shit. And then I thought about the world that I wanted to create here with news reporting, uh, 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 somebody that wants to be telling the truth, but no one believes them. Somebody who is a, an unreliable hero, which I, you know, in, in my own life, because of my addiction history, you try and tell people things and then they go, yeah, right. You've lied so many times, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, holy shit. It's Jerry with an eye. She is, mm. she is a woman. And how incredible is it going to be for her to be the first appointed who is a woman and will we find out that have there been other women who were appointed but mm. maybe if you were was that something that was maligned was like we don't know right like how many how many how many women were actually qualified to be leaders in our time were qualified to have positions that were then you know cut down from them just because men in power um have been so threatened by the idea of ceding any of that control over this, you know, system, which we've rigged for our benefit, especially white, you know, men. And I know some of your listeners are gonna be like, Oh, here comes Mr. Woke, but sorry, I, I, this is how I see the world. And mm -hmm. I, I hope if you disagree with me philosophically, politically about these things, you can read my comic and go, I'm glad this guy isn't here trying to sledgehammer me with his ideologies. But the truth is I do want to touch your heart and I do want to at least get you to look at things a little bit differently. And these are issues that are important to me. And these are stories that I heard firsthand. I'm not just pulling this off of, you know, sensationalist clickbait news stories. These were consistently stories I was told that I was like, this needs to be, my hero needs to be 
Jerry with an I, and I love her so much. And by the way, just as you can note, when you look at the book and thank God for Lucas getting exactly what I needed, I'm going back to say, I love Vampirella and I love Red Sonia and I love um, Barbarella and I love, um, you know, Hack and Slash and I love so many different, you know, I think maybe Route 666 was one of the only times I saw like a a heroine fighting a monster who wasn't always in like mini skirts or midriff mm-hmm. shirts. And Hey dude, I, I, I love those looks. I trust me. I grew up thinking like the covers of heavy metal magazine were as hot as it comes. So there's, there is a place for that erotic kick-ass, the female form with the swords and the, but for Jerry, it had to be like, if there's anything sexy about her, it's just her badassery. And like, mm-hmm. she's in busted up, Doc Martens and ripped flannels and like uh that's the that's the hero I wanted to create. Does that make sense? Yeah. Totally. I think another thing that's so important about Jerry is that she feels like she is in transition. At like, you know, she was she was somewhere and she thought that was her place and then something happened that said, "Oh, this is not your pl- this is not your place." In fact, um like perhaps your place is nowhere and so i like that idea of like going like i don't have to commit to myself until some place a place has committed to me yeah yeah it's hard to survive those moments too mm-hmm. i don't know if anybody's ever been in that position where you pretty sure this is where i'm going this is my thing this is my purpose this is my cause and And, or this is the relationship that's meant to be the relationship, or this is my strongest bond is with this person. And then all of a sudden the rug just gets pulled out from under you and you're stuck holding the bag going, how do I go forward? And I want my readers to hopefully care enough about Jerry that from page one forward, they're going to be like, this woman is a self-sabotaging foul mouth pain in the ass, but I can't help love her. And I can't help hope that she is going to figure out how to pull this out. Cause I, I do want it to truly feel like at any moment it all could be lost genuinely. And hopefully if you read the book, you'll see that there's ways I'm able to do that without having to cancel the series. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I, I want, well, I love hearing how you have this desire to continue to write Count Crowley stories with Lucas for the rest of your writing life. I I love hearing it, and especially compared to how each volume ends. Each volume ends with like cliffhanger, yeah, cliffhanger. <laughs> and where it, it like when I got done with the second book, I was tortured that I didn't have the third book in my hand already. Thanks, um, man. That means is, a lot. Is that like what is the cliffhanger for you? as a signifier is that and is that just a promise well, it of is, more it things, is you know? it's a tradition that i think yeah. is really important and beautiful it's why in spite of everybody saying throwing around terms like comic book fatigue and blah 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 that i don't believe in that because people have been buying from the penny dreadfuls all the way through the monthly publication of comics from the big pu- two publishers all the way through the next tier of the five big indies all the way to the micro presses and the self-published books even with digital comics my wife is a huge um uh 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 uh, uh digital reader i'm not i'm a a, you know staples of paper guy but she's like we come back like moths to the flame 
every month or every week, you know? And um, so I think it's, a, it's, it's in line with tradition. And I think it's important to give your readers, a, a, you know, um, an experience that feels so satisfying that keep, but also makes them hungry to come back next season and see what, you know, specialties the chef is going to cook up and uh, hopefully be excited about. We have the traditional staples. Now we've got these things that you know you love. You know you love the way we do our fried chicken and our mashed potatoes. Yeah. So you come and you're going to see that you know you love the way we do these monsters and you love the way these characters are taking shape and their relationships are building. But holy crap, hold on. I'll tell you guys right now what I'm working on with um, the future of, of Jerry and Count Crowley involves... Um, a mythology that is inspired from Mary Shelley all the way up into, um, you know, kind of my favorite, like gonzo gore horror of seventies, eighties films like Frankenhooker. Um, I think that I think ghost mythology and spook spook mythology from especially the Midwest where I grew up is powerful and rich. So I want to bring that into the world. And, um, as you can see, I'm, <laughs> I, we are piled high. There's a lot of cool stuff cooking right now. And I, um, hopefully be able to share some new, um, some new stuff with you guys very soon. I'm working around the clock on it. Yeah. And, and one thing that we do have for sure, I know I mentioned earlier, but I'm very excited with dark horse, Megan, my editor put together this, um, anthology for Halloween, the Headless Horseman, which is going to be a collection of shorts. It's me and uh, Leo Leah Kilpatrick wrote this piece that uh, Tyler Crook, who I think is genius. Oh my Please God. Tyler Crook. Tyler Crook and you. His favorite. Yeah. He's my it's favorite writer so on great. religious trauma. Like, yeah. All of his so when you see this, we, so what Leah and I wanted to do was, 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 turn because she's a really funny she's got a lot of comedy chops which i don't have so we're a good partnership um and she loves monsters and so we wanted to show like what would a haunted house look like from the perspective of uh, someone besides just the humans going through the haunted house mm, and then also like what cool. is scary about humans like what about us would you put on display if you were going to make a haunted house and then tyler was like i'm in yes and, and he started drawing it and we were like so um, that's coming in October and then I'll have more announcements very soon. Very cool. You are like living the comic book nerd dream. Right. I am. Yeah. And I'm very grateful and I'm grateful to you guys. Thank you for, you know, wanting to talk to me about this. I hope, um, maybe like after the spooky season, we could do it again and, uh, talk about by then I'll be able to show you some surprise, cool stuff. And, uh, have more stories for you guys to read. And, uh, but yeah, I love that you're a couple who do this together. I think it's so wonderful. Um, I love sharing my nerddom, you know, with, with, with Eve, there's stuff that we love to do together. And uh, I, I love that you have this show. So thanks for, yeah. thanks for having me on you guys. It was wonderful. I really appreciate it. David, thank you so much. Open door. Anytime you want to talk comics, you're welcome. You got it. Yes. All right. Take care. Well, thank you guys. I'll talk to you soon. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. 
David is just the sweetest human being. He didn't have to say nice things. Oh, but we love it that he but did. But we loved it. We loved it. So thank you, David, again for joining us on Comic Book Couples Counseling, talking Count Crowley. And it looks like the future is quite bright for David Dasmalchin Comics. So much going on. And I know there's going to be a few surprises coming out of New York Comic Con. Pay attention to those social media feeds. I was not a monster kid growing up. Like, I was actively discouraged mm. from looking in those dark places. And part of it was I was, like, a super sensitive kid. Like, I found <laughs> Maleficent, like, extremely scary to the point where, like, when we got when we got the, the, the uh, Sleeping Beauty book, I was like, we have to throw this away immediately and not a trash can in the house. <laughs> but, like... Um, but like uh, I was told not to go down certain aisles at Blockbuster Video. Like we didn't watch scary movies. Um, that those are the aisles that I lived in. I know, and and like, and um, when you're discouraged to look into dark places, you begin making assumptions about the individuals who choose to live there. Like like they're not happy, or they're malicious in some way, or you know, or they're. Um, Satan worshiping or something like that, that they're dark people, that they're dark right? people. But then you meet Wes Craven and he's like this kindly college professor, super sweet guy or Alice Cooper, who's yeah. a famously like really enthusiastic golfer right, and things right. like that. And so I love talking to people like David Dasmalchen or Kyle Starks or Tyler Crook, these people who go to the dark places and they are rejuvenated by them and they are effervescent because of them. David Dasmalchen reminds me a lot of Guillermo del Toro, you know, these creators who are inspired by the monsters, who see themselves in the monsters and the monster as a metaphor for the other and how often people who feel othered uh, see the people othering the others as the village, right? Like right, it's right. that whole night of the living dead thing where like the zombies are not actually the problem. The people are the problem. Human evil is the worst evil or is the truest evil or is actually is the, evil? Only evil, the only evil. Maybe yeah, yeah, <laughs> we don't yeah. know. Um, but like I found like as an adult, like, going to Fantastic Fest and and um, engaging with you and your deep love of horror. Like, I have found the horror genre and the scary places to be inspirational and an opportunity to um, empathize. And, and I think I'm a little bit of a gremlin as well. Like, <laughs> I have my own dark places that when I shine a light on them, I um I learn about myself. Yeah, the monster is me. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and like that's such a freeing idea. And I love everything that David is exploring in Count Crowley and I'm so excited to hear where he's possibly going with these characters. And I'm like I'm in love with this book as just a comic book too. We talked a little bit about his partnership with Lucas Kettner and how he really knows when to step back and let Lucas do his thing and this is just such a gorgeously rich looking book uh you you can tell that it's written by somebody who loves the form too 
And so often you find these creators who come from another medium and play around in comics and it just does not work at all. But with David, it totally does. And I want more comics out of him more than anything else. And the universe is providing. Yeah. And David is providing. He literally has his little fingers in so many pies right now. And I hope that he's loving it because we are really benefiting from it. He's clearly loving it. We know that he's loving it. And we're going to get a lot more from David in the comic book realm. Yes. And one of his comics I'm most excited about was one that was announced at San Diego Comic-Con this year, Knights vs. Samurai, which he's doing with Todd McFarlane. That sounds like a ridiculous idea, but I'm confident that David will make it work. I am very intrigued to see how that partnership is going to operate because they are very different individuals. Both beautiful. We love them both. Both friends of the pod. Absolutely. And you should pay attention to the Comic Book Couples Counseling website this week. We are going to drop a conversation with Todd McFarlane, our third conversation with Todd McFarlane, this time talking about Spawn number 350 and what it means to hit that milestone after having just, you know, entered the Guinness Book of World Records with Spawn number 301. And we are hosting at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia, a screening of Spawn, the movie from 1997, a film that Todd McFarlane has you know, complicated emotions about. Not Caligula complicated. No, no, but still complicated. And we asked him about that experience in 1997 and how he looks upon that film 26 years later. And we're going to take that portion of the interview and project it on the big screen before Spawn 1997 on Sunday, which is the day this episode comes out. So if you're listening to this episode bright and early in the morning, you still have time to get to the Alamo at four o'clock in Winchester, Virginia for our screening of Spawn, the 1997 movie. And you'll get to hear first what Todd McFarlane has to say about that film. And then later in the week, we'll post the conversation on the website. Coming up on our Patreon, we have another Married to Singles episode. We're talking to Christian Ward, getting into the nitty gritty of Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on a Serious Earth, which you guys know because you've listened to the main feed interview with Christian, that this was an enormous influence on his Batman City of Madness and that these two books are in conversation with each other. I love our Married to Singles episodes where we just go through the book page by page, breaking down the story and what it means to this creator. We've had conversations with Daniel Warren Johnson talking about the nom number nine and WWE referee Jason Ayers talking about Uncanny X-Men number 183. And these are some of my favorite conversations that we've had on Comic Book Couples Counseling. Access on the Patreon, just one dollar. Then coming up on the main feed is another creator corner. This is with Kevin Alvier talking Lisa Cheese and the Ghost Guitar. And y'all, this book is crazy, beautiful, weird, wonderful, heartfelt. It's just really, I mean, there's nothing out there like it. I've been describing it as the best Jack Kirby comic if Jack Kirby was the type of artist to table at the Small Press Expo in Bethesda, Maryland. And if you know what that means, you're real excited about it. Yeah, yeah, that is apt. And we're going to close out October with two epic episodes, one with Laura Somney and Chris Somney talking Jonna and the Impossible Monsters. They've been on the show before, just after the first trade wrapped up. 
But now we're doing a full spoilers, ultimate conversation on Jana and the Impossible Monsters to celebrate the big hardcover release that comes out on October 31st. And then our final episode of the month will be with Juni Ba talking about Mobilis, My Life with Nemo from TKO. Both of these books are two of the best books of the year. Do not miss them and do not miss these episodes. Okay, Brad, um, I hate to say this, but your palms are looking a little hairy. And I don't know if we're getting close to a full moon or you have other night activities that are totally fine and healthy, but we should probably talk about where can our listeners send the words of affirmation to you. Definitely a full moon, Lisa. It's a full moon. Let's not talk about it. That's what they all say. You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Actually, you can find me on most social medias, let's be real. If you have some words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. If you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, Google, Apple Podcasts, whatever app you prefer. We're everywhere. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. Including a conversation with Malcolm McDowell. Oh my goodness. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on all the socials at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? Yes, please. We're fluent and receptive in all five love languages, it really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full and your psychic rapport open. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I have a little bit of morning voice. <laughs> Is that how you get rid of it? It wouldn't hurt. You're supposed to do like uh, the arsonist had oddly shaped feet. Unique New York, unique New York. The human torch was denied a bank loan. Who is the voice professional here? Uh, Brad. Because I am a man, and I know more than anyone. Stop woman. trying to create a clever outro, or this whatever we outro. call it, a stinger. It's called a stinger. <laughs> a stinger. <laughs>